Welcome, all, to Finnerin's Wake. I hope this episode finds you well, as August, a tempestuous month, more so than in years past, marches toward its end. I thank you, sincerely, for taking some time to spend with me. The title of James George Fraser's fascinating, daring, and voluminous book, The Golden Bough, was inspired by and borrowed from the work of a man whose genius, albeit in a different domain, nearly eclipsed his own. Fraser, born in Scotland to a respectable family in the year 1854, had in his youth the splendid opportunity to gaze upon the masterful works of his esteemed countryman, Joseph Mallard William Turner. Turner, having just died in 1851, continued in the afterlife to receive the type of national worship and universal acclaim of which, within and beyond the borders of Great Britain, he was so richly deserving. He was, and yet remains, the greatest artist to whom that fertile little island floating in the North Sea has given birth, and trembles not when brought before the judgment of the world's and of history's great artists. In every way, he holds his own. Indeed, an entire podcast could be dedicated to him. Among his various works, though, one of his best beloved was unveiled in 1834, it bore the title, The Golden Bough. An unabashed classicist, J.M.W. Turner took as his subject a delightful passage found in Virgil's Aeneid. From an excerpt nestled in the great Latin poet's sixth book, he imagined the refugee hero Aeneas's encounter with the Sibyl of Cumae. Prior to meeting this Apollonian prophetess, by whom, depending on the day, a frightful omen might be uttered, or a propitious fortune affirmed, Aeneas was forced to flee the destruction of his native land, For ten years, Troy, the renowned and fortified city of his birth, had been enmeshed in a state of near-constant war, a decade besieged by a European power upon which, give or take a few, the majority of Olympus's capricious gods had deemed it fitting to smile. Aeneas, en route, to Italy, 
and before his detention on the African shore by the mad Punic queen, was bereaved of his father. Anchises, rescued from Troy's crumbling walls on his son's noble back, was dead. Hopeful to visit him in the dark underworld to which he'd since been conveyed, Aeneas sought the counsel of the Cumaean Sibyl. There, on the banks of Lake Avernus, into which one plunges as a means of passage to the nether realm below, Aeneas asked of her by what means he might ensure the safety of his infernal conduct. Conscious of the dangers by which, more often than not, so perilous a journey is attended, she advised him to equip himself with a single divine token, a golden bow. This gilded piece of bark would be his sole protection. John Dryden, the English poet of the 17th century by whom Virgil's crowning work was most eloquently translated, described the Sibyl's response as follows. In the neighboring grove there stands a tree, the queen of Stygian Jove claims it her own. Thick woods and gloomy night conceal the happy plant from human sight. One bow it bears, but wondrous to behold, the ductile rind and leaves of radiant gold. This from the vulgar branches must be torn, and to fair Persephone, the present born, ere leave be given to tempt the nether skies. And so, not without proper Sibylline sanction, Aeneas entered the neighboring grove. He stepped forth into that verdant vale at whose center, like the tree of knowledge swaying at Eden's guiltless heart, the golden bough stood temptingly outstretched. He detached it from the host tree out of which it grew, marveled at its radiance, stood in awe of its dazzling weight, and carried it with him toward the looming gates of hell. The image captivated not only Turner, but Fraser. The latter spent the early part of The Golden Bough, a work that came to be a thirteen-volume set focused on the topic. Ultimately, with the scholarly assistance and discriminating good taste of his wife, Fraser was able to reduce his life's work to a single hefty volume, much more agreeable, not to mention accessible, to the lay readership for whom it was originally intended. Year after year, it seemed, as one edition succeeded another, 
Fraser's work grew unchecked. It had a startling tendency to multiply itself, as if shoots of the bamboo plant or branches of the banyan tree. The first edition of The Golden Bough, published in 1890, had but two volumes. The second, published a decade hence, added yet another. The third, a lustrum later, quadrupled its count. By 1936, a final volume had been added, bringing the lengthy tally to an unwieldy thirteen. Unfortunately, between the third and fourth editions, Fraser had gone blind. It's clear, though, that this unenviable deficit served not as a check on, but rather as an impulsion toward further creative output. Though rendered sightless, his energy suffered little. Like John Milton before him, he recruited from his circle of intimates a trustworthy amanuensis by whom his countless ideas could be put to paper. And, thus, he continued to write rather with his tongue than his hand, unhampered by the visual loss brought upon him by climate, occupation, health, and advancing age. As a Scot, the spirit of David Hume lived in Fraser. One isn't surprised, then, to learn that a healthy skepticism infuses his approach toward religion. Fraser was most interested in the roots of folklore, the peculiarities and banalities of myth, and the subtleties of comparative religion. By his examination of these antique creeds, he wanted to discover among the world's various and seemingly irreconcilable faiths points of convergence and similarity. He was, for that reason, very little convinced by claims of uniqueness as they pertain to revelation and divinity. He was unswayed by the boasts of competing faiths, each of which thinks itself radically different from its forebear. He sought, rather, to find those pious notions that are commonplace among all, and the somewhat banal realities by which miracles can be explained. Life, death, resurrection, rebirth. Do these not reflect cosmological events? Does not the sun die each night, only to spill across the horizon the morning after? The waxing and waning phases of the moon point to a similar cycle. Perhaps our precious gods merely imitate the stars, 
while our questions about religion look for explanations in the clouds. The following is a reading from Fraser's work, The Golden Bough. The passage here selected deals with the nativity of Jesus and the startling resemblance that holy event shares with a phenomenon of far less religious weight, the winter solstice, or, if it's to be expressed poetically, the nativity of the sun. I do hope that you'll enjoy. Among the gods of Eastern origin, who in the decline of the ancient world competed against each other for the allegiance of the West, was the old Persian deity Mithra. The immense popularity of his worship is attested by the monuments illustrative of it, which have been found scattered in profusion all over the Roman Empire. In respect both of doctrines and of rites, the cult of Mithra appears to have presented many points of resemblance, not only to the religion of the mother of the gods, but also to Christianity. The similarity struck the Christian doctors themselves, and was explained by them as a work of the devil, who sought to seduce the souls of men from the true faith by a false and insidious imitation of it. So to the Spanish conquerors of Mexico and Peru, many of the native heathen rites appeared to be diabolical counterfeits of the Christian sacraments. With more probability, the modern student of comparative religion traces such resemblances to the similar and independent workings of the mind of man in his sincere, if crude, attempts to fathom the secret of the universe and to adjust his little life to its awful mysteries. However that may be, there can be no doubt that the Mithraic religion proved a formidable arrival to Christianity, combining, as it did, a solemn ritual with aspirations after moral purity and a hope of immortality. Indeed, the issue of the conflict between the two faiths appears for a time to have hung in the balance. An instructive relic of the long struggle is preserved in our festival of Christmas, which the church seems to have borrowed directly from its heathen rival. In the Julian calendar, the 25th of December was reckoned the winter solstice, and it was regarded as the nativity of the sun, because the day begins to lengthen and the power of the sun to increase from that turning point of the year. The ritual of the nativity, as it appears, to have been celebrated in Syria and Egypt, was remarkable. 
the celebrants retired into certain inner shrines, from which at midnight they issued with a loud cry, quote, The Virgin has brought forth, the light is waxing, unquote. The Egyptians even represented the newborn son by the image of an infant, which on his birthday, the winter solstice, they brought forth and exhibited to his worshippers. No doubt the virgin who thus conceived and bore a son on the 25th of December was the great oriental goddess whom the Semites called the Heavenly Virgin, or simply the heavenly goddess. In Semitic lands, she was a form of Astarte. Now, Mithra was regularly identified by his worshippers with the sun, the unconquered sun, as they called him. Hence, his nativity also fell on the 25th of December, the Gospels say nothing as to the day of Christ's birth, and accordingly the early church did not celebrate it. In time, however, the Christians of Egypt came to regard the 6th of January as the date of the Nativity, and the custom of commemorating the birth of the Savior on that day gradually spread until, by the 4th century, it was universally established in the East. But at the end of the 3rd, or the beginning of the 4th century, the Western Church, which had never recognized the 6th of January as the day of the Nativity, adopted the 25th of December as the true date and in time its decision was accepted also by the Eastern Church. At Antioch, the change was not introduced till about the year 375 A.D. What considerations led the ecclesiastical authorities to institute the festival of Christmas? The motives for the innovation are stated with great frankness by a Syrian writer, himself a Christian. The reason, he tells us, why the fathers transferred the celebration of the 6th of January to the 25th of December was this. It was a custom of the heathen to celebrate on the same 25th of December the birthday of the sun, at which they kindled lights in token of festivity. In these solemnities and festivities, the Christians also took part. Accordingly, when the doctors of the church perceived that the Christians had a leaning to this festival, they took counsel and resolved that the true nativity should be solemnized on that day and the festival of the Epiphany on the 6th of January. Accordingly, along with this custom, the practice has prevailed of kindling fires till the 6th. The heathen origin of Christmas is plainly hinted at, 
if not tacitly admitted by Augustine, when he exhorts his Christian brethren not to celebrate that solemn day like the heathen on account of the sun, but on account of him who made the sun. In like manner, Leo the Great rebuked the pestilent belief that Christmas was solemnized because of the birth of the new sun, as it was called, and not because of the nativity of Christ. Thus it appears that the Christian Church chose to celebrate the birthday of its founder on the 25th of December in order to transfer the devotion of the heathen from the sun to him who was called the Son of Righteousness. If that was so, there can be no intrinsic improbability in the conjecture that motives of the same sort may have led the ecclesiastical authorities to assimilate the Easter festival of the death and resurrection of their Lord to the festival of death and resurrection of another Asiatic god which fell at the same season. Now, the Easter rites still observed in Greece, Sicily, and southern Italy bear in some respects a striking resemblance to the rites of Adonis, and I have suggested that the Church may have consciously adapted the new festival to its heathen predecessor for the sake of winning souls to Christ. But this adaptation probably took place in the Greek-speaking rather than in the Latin-speaking parts of the ancient world. For the worship of Adonis, while it flourished among the Greeks, appears to have made little impression on Rome in the West. Certainly it never formed part of the official Roman religion. The place which it might have taken in the effect of the vulgar was already occupied by the similar but more barbarous worship of Attis and the Great Mother. Now, the death and resurrection of Attis were officially celebrated at Rome on the 24th and 25th of March, the latter being regarded as the spring equinox and therefore as the most appropriate day for the revival of a god of vegetation who had been dead or sleeping throughout the winter. But according to an ancient and widespread tradition, Christ suffered on the 25th of March, and accordingly some Christians regularly celebrated the crucifixion on that day without any regard to the state of the moon. This custom was certainly observed in Phrygia, Cappadocia, and Gaul, and there seems to be grounds for thinking that at one time it was followed also in Rome. Thus, the tradition which placed the death of Christ on the 25th of March was ancient and deeply rooted. It is all the more remarkable because astronomical considerations prove that it can have had no historical foundation. 
the inference appears to be inevitable that the passion of Christ must have been arbitrarily referred to that date in order to harmonize with an older festival of the spring equinox. This is the view of the learned ecclesiastical historian, Monsieur Duchesne, who points out that the death of the Savior was thus made to fall upon the very day on which, according to a widespread belief, the world had been created. But the resurrection of Attis, who combined in himself the characters of the Divine Father and the Divine Son, was officially celebrated at Rome on that same day. When we remember that the festival of St. George in April has replaced the ancient pagan festival of the Perilia, that the festival of St. John the Baptist in June has succeeded to a heathen midsummer festival of water, that the festival of the Assumption of the Virgin in August has ousted the festival of Diana, that the Feast of All Souls in November is a continuation of an old heathen feast of the dead, and that the Nativity of Christ himself was assigned to the winter solstice in December because that day was deemed the Nativity of the Sun. We can hardly be thought rash or unreasonable in conjecturing that the other cardinal festival of the Christian Church, the solemnization of Easter, may have been, in like manner, and from like motives of edification, adapted to a similar celebration of the Phrygian god Attis at the vernal equinox. At least it is a remarkable coincidence, if it is nothing more, that the Christian and the heathen festivals of the divine death and resurrection should have had solemnized at the same season and in the same places. For the places which celebrated the death of Christ at the spring equinox were Phrygia, Gaul, and apparently Rome, that is, the very regions in which the worship of Attis either originated or struck deepest root. It is difficult to regard the coincidence as purely accidental. If the vernal equinox, the season at which in the temperate regions the whole face of nature testifies to a fresh outburst of vital energy, had been viewed from of old as the time when the world was annually created afresh and the same resurrection of a god, nothing could be more natural than to place the resurrection of the new deity at the same cardinal point of the year. Only it is to be observed that if the death of Christ was dated on the 25th of March, his resurrection, according to Christian tradition, must have happened on the 27th of March. Which is just two days later than the vernal equinox of the Julian calendar, 
and the resurrection of Attis. A similar placement of two days in the adjustment of Christian to heathen celebrations occurs in the festivals of St. George and the Assumption of the Virgin. However, another Christian tradition, followed by Lactantius and perhaps by the practice of the church in Gaul, placed the death of Christ on the 23rd and his resurrection on the 25th of March. If that was so, his resurrection coincided exactly with the resurrection of Attis. In point of fact, it appears from the testimony of an anonymous Christian who wrote in the 4th century of our era that Christians and pagans alike were struck by the remarkable coincidence between the death and resurrection of their respective deities, and that the coincidence formed a theme of bitter controversy between the adherents of their rival religions, the pagans contending that the resurrection of Christ was a spurious imitation of the resurrection of Attis, and the Christians asserting with equal warmth that the resurrection of Attis was a diabolical counterfeit of the resurrection of Christ. In these unseemly bickerings, the heathen took what to a superficial observer might seem strong ground by arguing that their god was the older and therefore presumably the original, not the counterfeit since, as a general rule, an original is older than its copy. This feeble argument the Christians easily rebutted. They admitted, indeed, that in point of time Christ was the junior deity, but they triumphantly demonstrated his real seniority by falling back on the subtlety of Satan who on so important an occasion had surpassed himself by inverting the usual order of nature. Taken altogether, the coincidences of the Christian with the heathen festivals are too close and too numerous to be accidental. They mark the compromise which the church, in the hour of its triumph, was compelled to make with its vanquished, yet still dangerous rivals. The inflexible Protestantism of the primitive missionaries, with their fiery denunciations of heathendom, had been exchanged for the supple policy, the easy tolerance, the comprehensive charity of shrewd ecclesiastics, who clearly perceived that if Christianity were to conquer the world, it could do so only by relaxing the two rigid principles of its founder, by widening a little the narrow gate which leads to salvation. In this respect, an instructive parallel might be drawn between the history of Christianity in the history of Buddhism. 
both systems were, in their origin, essentially ethical reforms, born of the generous ardor, the lofty aspirations, the tender compassion of their noble founders, two of those beautiful spirits who appear at rare intervals on earth like beings come from a better world to support and guide our weak and erring nature. Both preached moral virtue as the means of accomplishing what they regarded as the supreme object of life, the eternal salvation of the individual soul, though by a curious antithesis, the one sought that salvation in a blissful eternity, the other in a final release from suffering, in annihilation. But the austere ideals of sanctity which they inculcated were too deeply opposed not only to the frailties but to the natural instincts of humanity ever to be carried out in practice by more than a small number of disciples, who consistently renounced the ties of the family and the state in order to work out their own salvation in the still seclusion of the cloister. If such faiths were to be nominally accepted by whole nations or even by the world, it was essential that they should first be modified or transformed so as to accord in some measure with the prejudices, the passions, the superstitions of the vulgar. This process of accommodation was carried out in after ages by followers who, made of less ethereal stuff than their masters, were for that reason the better fitted to mediate between them and the common herd. Thus, as time went on, the two religions, in exact proportion to their growing popularity, absorbed more and more of those baser elements which they had been instituted for the very purpose of suppressing. Such spiritual decadences were inevitable. The world cannot live at the level of its great men. Yet it would be unfair to the generality of our kind to ascribe wholly to their intellectual and moral weakness the gradual divergence of Buddhism and Christianity from their primitive patterns. For it should never be forgotten that by their glorification of poverty and celibacy, both these religions struck straight at the root, and not merely of civil society, but of human existence. The blow was parried by the wisdom or the folly of the vast majority of mankind, who refused to purchase a chance of saving their souls with the certainty of extinguishing the species. And with that, my dearest listeners, 
I bid you farewell.